1990s saw a renaissance in Lincoln studies when authors for the first time in many years began to take seriously the intellectual side of our 16th president. No book was more influential in this development than Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President. Our guest today is the author of that book and also the Henry R. Luce Professor of Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College, Dr. Alan C. Gelzo. Join us with Dr. Gelzo when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed, they're more creative, and if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dahlneck, at russisfunny.com because, well, russischubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during a live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, speaking to you from my otherwise deserted office on the very quiet summertime campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, saying this even before the lawyers tell me to say it, not speaking on behalf of the university, not doing anything but using their phone and their office and their air conditioning, not speaking on behalf of my guests or Civil War Talk Radio or anybody else, just me. And I'm sure my guest uh, today, as always, is doing the same thing. I'm very pleased to have uh, uh, Alan Gelzo as our guest today, in part because, as you'll hear momentarily, he has perhaps the best radio voice of anyone in the Civil War Lincoln world, and that's an appropriate counterbalance to me, as I have been a little under the weather for the last few weeks. I feel much better, but my voice is shot and is probably less fun for you to listen to than it is for me to use it. So I'm looking forward to asking perhaps one pithy question and letting Alan run with it for the next uh, 57 minutes. Before we get to that, though, uh, a bit of quick housekeeping. Uh, as always, donations to Civil War Talk Radio are welcome to help buy the books, by the authors who come on the show so I can read them and know what I'm talking about, what they're talking about, and for whatever other purposes, um, medicine perhaps for uh, my throat. So donations are always welcome, and I particularly would like to thank uh, Ricky Hildebrandt of Massachusetts for his very generous donations over the course of Civil War Talk Radio. Generous to the point that I've thought of renaming the show the uh, Ricky Hildebrandt Hour, but that would confuse people as to the topic. So uh, 
we'll keep it Civil War Talk Radio and encourage others to, uh, uh, to join him in uh, contributing. I also want to uh, send congratulations to uh, someone we had as a guest on the show a few weeks back, uh, Joshua Schenk, author of uh, Lincoln's Melancholy, a very interesting book on Lincoln and Depression, who uh, during our conversation mentioned the uh, the woes of the, the academic job hunt that, that anyone in academia uh, knows, either firsthand or close secondhand, uh, what that's like. And I was happy to receive an email from him saying that uh, he's joining the faculty at Washington College, a liberal arts school on the eastern shore of Maryland's Chesapeake Bay. He'll be the director of the Rose O'Neill Literary House, and I'm delighted that Josh has had success in his search. And finally, as a way of starting, I want to congratulate our guest today, Alan Gelzo, who also sent out good news not long ago that the Henry R. Luce Foundation is renewing its support of Gettysburg College and the chair that Dr. Gelzo holds, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era. Uh, Alan, are you there? I am here, Jerry. I'm glad glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear your voice, which uh, sounds better than mine on normal occasions, but much better today. I'm sure there is a Civil War <clears throat> recipe uh, or medical concoction of some sort that we could try out on you to further your your participation in the authentic experience of the Civil War. Some some sort of bark brewed or something like that. Oh, that calomel. How about some uh, a mercury-based mixture? I've been taking Blue Mass for the last couple of weeks, and that hasn't... <laughs> I'm know, afraid just... that won't do much for your throat, but it may... Or at least it was reputed to have done some things for other parts of the anatomy, <laughs> which we will not try to lay out in detail for you. I think that would be wise. I have become very irritable and violent, but that's that's its expected side effect. Um, let me ask you, as we start, if you could speak up a little bit or hold the phone close, because the, the tin can and string with which I'm supplied by East Carolina University is... Uh, makes it hard to hear. All right. Well, I'll try to uh, amplify a little bit more, maybe pound on the on the desk in front of me. Uh, maybe that will help. That would be great. Well, Alan, I, I was, uh, I, this past week I really have been under the weather, and normally I do prepare uh, listeners will, will vouch for this, that I uh, get my questions in order or try to and uh, read up on the, the books. And I admit I've been sort of bedridden, and I have just glanced at Redeemer President for the first time in a couple of years, but I remember very what an impact it made uh, when it came out as the first book that really restored the debate on Lincoln's intellectual uh, legacy, not just sort of inspirational speaker and Father Abraham figure, but someone whose ideas needed to be taken as seriously as his actions. What uh, what brought you to the idea of studying Lincoln from that angle? Well, first of all, my methodological specialty, if you can call it that, is really American intellectual history. It's the history of American ideas, the history of American philosophy. And while that seems a bit far removed from Lincoln and the Civil War, uh, nevertheless, that is the path I was going down in the mid-1990s when I was working particularly on a project concerning uh, the history of the idea of free will and determinism in American philosophy. I knew from work I had done all along on teaching the Civil War and on Abraham Lincoln that Lincoln had a few things to say on that particular subject, and I thought it might be an unusual way of broadening the scope of a book that otherwise 
spent a great deal of time talking about philosophers and professional thinkers to be able to include uh, a president speaking to this particular intellectual question. And I began work on including Lincoln in this. The material on Lincoln grew almost on its own. And in fact, I never did finish that project on the history of determinism in America because I turned to working on a paper about Lincoln and determinism, which uh, later was published in the Journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association uh, as Abraham Lincoln and the Doctrine of Necessity. Uh, gave that uh, paper at one of the annual uh, symposia of the Abraham Lincoln Association in Springfield, Illinois. And afterwards, uh, probably about two months after that, was surprised when a publisher uh, and a representative of a publisher got in touch with me and said, would you be interested in writing a book on Lincoln? Now, that's rather slender beginnings uh, to write a book on Lincoln, but um, for that reason, I had to say, no, I, I don't think I should be doing that. I'm really not a Lincoln person. Uh, they came back to me persistently, <laughs> and uh, they said, well, we'd like you to write a book on Lincoln and religion. That put me off even more, because one thing I did know was that there have been a tremendous number of books written about Lincoln and religion, and about nine out of ten of them are really the kind of thing that uh, convince you that there cannot possibly be a paper shortage. Uh, they're, they're not the best kinds of, of books. They're poorly written, and the whole notion of writing a book on Lincoln and religion had about all the charm of the Great Dismal Swamp uh, to, to someone who was trying to be a professional historian. They came back a third time, and they said, well, look, if you don't do this, we're going to put this project into the hands of Professor X. Uh, and I knew Professor X, and I knew that Professor X knew much, much, much less about Abraham Lincoln. So I came back with a counteroffer. I said, all right, look, rather than write a book about Lincoln and religion, why don't you let me write an intellectual bi biography of Lincoln? Let me take that initial paper on Lincoln and determinism and free will and see what I can do to expand that and write a, write a biography of Lincoln that would stress how he thought, where, what, were the, what were the sources of his ideas, what, was, what did his mental geography look like. And that was what I set to work on. That was what was published as Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President. And in a sense, Jerry, once having gotten my hand into this, I haven't been able to get it out. And so that's been followed by, by a book on Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. And I'm now in the midst of work on a book on Lincoln and Douglas in the great senatorial debates of 1858. Now, that, that's an interesting uh, trajectory. And what strikes me is how it's not altogether unusual uh, in the Lincoln world, much of the much of the work of that, that Lincoln Renaissance, if we want to call it that, in the 1990s, didn't start with people coming up as Lincoln authorities or, or traditional people who'd written on Lincoln traditionally. Oh, that's true. Uh, Douglas Wilson comes to mind, uh, a Jefferson mm -hmm. scholar who, who gets starts writing a little comparison piece on Lincoln and Jefferson's reading, and like you, he, he hasn't been able to get his hand out since. Uh, and I'm sure there are others... Uh, is there something about Lincoln that uh, that just draws us in? Well, I'm, for me, there are a number of personal things which attract me to the figure of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, certainly, I've been acquainted with the figure of Lincoln, read books about Lincoln, had 
probably more than just a nodding interest in Abraham Lincoln since I was very small. But the things that sort of turned me into a Lincolnite, if you will, uh, go into the unusual mix of personal characteristics of the man. Uh, one certainly is his resilience, which I came to admire profoundly as I was working on Redeemer President. Uh, here was a man who was struck repeatedly by blows which would have prostrated just about any of the rest of us. And what he showed instead was, was a remarkable capacity to absorb punishment. I also appreciate in Lincoln his willingness to keep moving ahead even when everyone around him is counseling him that he doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. Uh, this was a man whom people routinely, regularly, and thoroughly underestimated. He didn't have the conventional credentials. If we were to recommend him to a search firm today, they would probably laugh at us. Uh, he does not have a resume that would commend him to the kind of position he ended up occupying. And yet the funny thing was that he kept using that underestimate that people made of him. He kept turning it to his own advantage and, in fact, did great things when people had written him off. I suppose in one respect he was able to do that precisely because they had written him off and they weren't watching while he worked the small-scale miracles that he did. And, right. and, and I guess a last thing that, that, that continuously... Uh, attracts me to Lincoln is the thing that he really tended to talk the most about when he talked about himself, and that was uh, his dedication to self-transformation, to uh, being able to rise in one's situation in life, to better one's condition. And the, the promise of that, I mean, speaking to, to someone who is um, you know, the, the, the grandchild of, of both Jewish and Lutheran and Catholic Irish immigrants who, who grew up with grandparents who went through the Great Depression and who really had nothing, or at least what had, they did have, they lost, and really had to start from, from almost behind the eight ball. That lesson in the capacity, the, the opportunity to transform oneself, is, is a powerful potion for me personally, and, and keeps bringing me back to Lincoln. Let me ask you, I can tie together maybe those first and third qualities. When I was studying history in graduate school, absorbing the skeptical, not to say cynical, uh, postmodern view that the individual is not uh, not particularly important in history, the I was unstruck when I came to study Lincoln in my first job at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and to discover here was a historical figure who seemed thoroughly admirable, mm -hmm. who was not someone simply puffed up by uh, consensus historians to, to look good, but whose own actions and writings really did seem to show uh, someone you could respect and, and admire, which is not what one is certainly taught in school, uh, in graduate school, to do. Uh, but let me push on that now. The, one of the admirable things about Lincoln, as you point out, is his persistence. In the public mind, you see this reflected in, in a billboard uh, around the country that 
it has a picture of Lincoln in the, in the, in the words failed, uh, failed at this, failed at right. that, yeah. and then he's president. And we've all heard that litany of Lincoln's failures, and then suddenly mm-hmm. he's president. In fact, you can do an equally convincing list of Lincoln's successes up to 1860. Mm-hmm. Uh, a prominent lawyer, elected to Congress, marries above his station, uh, nominated for this, uh, re- really a, a very successful man by ordinary standards. And so when you point out he survived many blows, he also enjoyed many successes, but was not satisfied with them. His standards, it seems to me, were incomparably higher for himself than they are for most of us. Uh, and well, well, I think that's true. I, I think that he was successful in a, a number of areas, certainly as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he starts out really as, a, as an apprentice in the late 1830s, and he's he's doing... Oh, the usual kind of pettifogging uh, jobs that today I expect most lawyers leave to their secretaries to do. Uh, well, the, at least it's it the first year. My, I can tell you from experience, it's the first year law, uh, just out of law school. Okay. First okay. year associates to get to do those kinds of things. Well, my my daughter works for a law office in, in Delaware, and <clears throat> so, she she winds up doing a great deal more of of what you might think that a secretary in a law office does. But uh, be that as it may. The successes he does rack up, impressive as they are. I mean, by the 1850s, he is earning a more than decent income. He's doing mm-hmm. very well, especially uh, from from uh, litigation on both sides uh, for the for the railroads. Uh, he's doing a lot of his work in the 1850s in the, at the appellate level. Uh, he's doing very well, but the things in which he is doing very well are not the things he really, really wants to do well in. The places where he wanted to succeed are where he has met those failures. And it's remarkable that there is this one point between 1849 and 1854 when he just about does give it up, give up on the ambitions, be content with the successes he's got. And uh, that, of course, ends, as he says in his autobiographical sketch, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act roused him as, as nothing had ever roused him before and propels him back into politics, reignites his ambitions for office, and eventually puts him on the path that leads to the presidency uh, in 1860. But that ambition wasn't just to get elected, as he's very clear about it. It's to do something that will make him remembered yes. by future generations. He, that, he and thirsted, you, you talked about how, how poor he was. That's a remarkable ambition for someone from his background. Oh, yeah. He thirsted for honor and for glory. And he, in that respect, he is very much like so many of the heroic figures that are set out in the literature of the late 18th and the early 19th century uh, as, as the models for people who will live on in the memory of their country. Remember, here's someone who is, in, in large measure, a religious skeptic. Whatever belief he has about personal immortality, um, it's probably comparatively thin, and there are moments when, in fact, it doesn't even seem to be there at all. His substitute for it is honor and glory and the memory of one's, uh, of one's country and, uh, and one's fellows. And he really seeks after that. There have been psychological theorists who've suggested that the uh, thirst for political glory uh, is is evidence of a certain degree of psychological damage that is done in childhood, that people who just cannot seem 
to get their jollies except by being affirmed by the electorate, by, by winning political prizes, uh, are, are people who have suffered some serious loss or trauma in childhood, and they're trying to make up for it that way. Harold Laswell, who was a, a famous psychological writer in the 40s and the 50s, uh, propounded this as a theory for explaining uh, the behavior of prominent politicians. And in, in Lincoln's case, one almost wants to wonder if there is something there, that there was a, a, a missing piece of Lincoln's emotional life that he sought to make up for by this pursuit of honor and glory, especially in the political realm. But he definitely did seek after it, and as Herndon said, uh, it made his ambition uh, like a little engine that knew no rest. The uh, the Lyceum speech is often cited when, when this subject comes up, the speech he made as a young man in the 1830s, uh, e- even to the point of theorizing that the quest for honor and glory was, was a an Oedipal quest to slay the founding fathers slash Thomas Lincoln. That was, uh, it's, it's funny because that, is, that uh, interpretation of the, the Lyceum speech was actually first popularized by the literary critic Edmund Wilson. And it's that the interpretation has taken on a life of its own to the point where more people know about the interpretation than they actually know about the Lyceum speech. Um, if you take the Lyceum speech and drop it back into its context in the late 1830s, what he's really doing, of course, is complaining about the regime of Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren, and there's even some reason to think that uh, the towering giant whom he's warning people about is not his six-foot-four-inch self, but his diminutive five-foot-four-inch lifelong political opponent, Stephen A. Douglas. And thus, Towering Giant becomes something of an inside joke that Lincoln uh, is making uh, at Stephen A. Douglas. And uh, jokes are not things that we, uh, we disassociate from Abraham Lincoln, are they? Absolutely not. Uh, other things that we associate with Lincoln one way or another uh, are, are frequent references to, uh, to providence, to, uh, to God, uh, sometimes obliquely, sometimes directly. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break and come back in just a minute here on Civil War Talk Radio and talk about that subject with our guest, Dr. Alan C. Elzo, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 